Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you these things. I command you that you love one another and father, we humbly pause and ask now to Please help us. We want to continue to worship you. Even as we have sang in worship, Lord, we want our submission of our heart to the very voice of God speaking to us through your word this morning to be as much of an act of worship and devotion towards you. So please prepare us, Lord. Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church assembled this morning. We ask you would bless your word, your spirit's anointing would be upon it, and that you by your spirit would be our teacher. And our instructor now, speak to our heart, we ask, believing you will, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what is the most powerful force in the universe? I actually Google it, because you know that's how you always find the right answer, right? <laughs> Everything's accurate when you Google it. And when you Google what's the most powerful force in the universe, different things pop up. Uh, some things say nuclear power. Uh, one, the top on it was intelligence. Uh, I would say myself, biblically, that the most powerful force in the universe is the power of love. The power of love. And I think, honestly, that is why Jesus is even making some of the statements that we find here in this portion of scripture this morning as we continue this upper room teaching of Jesus with his disciples in the last hours before he dies. Look with me in verse 12. Jesus says there, as we read, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, if you haven't taken note yet as we're studying John's gospel, and particularly this section together, this is a repetitious command of the Lord. And it's a repetitious command of the Lord that's not to be observed if I feel like it or if I, I sense love towards someone. Rather, it's something I am to obey unto Jesus as the master and the ruler over my life. Take notice specifically of the language of Jesus there in the text. He says, this is my commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another. And as if somehow we possibly might not pay attention on occasion, or, or if we may be prone to ignore things that are difficult for us to do, Jesus states the exact same thing again. Just a few breaths later, look at it there. We read it in verse 17. He said, these things I command you that you love one another. 
Now, obviously, as verse 12 and verse 17, Jesus very repetitiously says the exact same thing. We'll consider those thoughts of those two verses together since they kind of state the same truth. But apparently, to Jesus, Christians loving one another among the family of God apparently is very important. It's very important to the Lord. This, as I said, is a repeated statement of Jesus, command of Jesus in this section we've been looking at together as he's giving now from John 13 through John 16 his final words, the dying words of Jesus we have, the departing words of the Lord. He knows he has hours left before he will be dying. So whenever someone gives their dying words, they have incredible importance. And Jesus does not want this apparently to be overlooked. This is something that matters very much to him. He knows the vitality of it for their existence as a group of believers living and functioning together. So he keeps purposely repeating this to make sure that they get the point and to make sure really that we get the point in fact if you remember starting with back in verse uh, excuse me chapter 13 remember there we saw jesus show the full extent of his love as he ministered to the disciples it told us that he was showing them the full extent of his love and then jesus after showing his love said this verse 17 if you know these things blessed are you if you do them and then look just a few chapters back john 13 particularly in verse 34 and 35 jesus said this there a new commandment i give to you what is it that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he add, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And now back here in chapter 15, our text this morning, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, repetitiously, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Apparently, one of the clearest distinctions of the fruit of the Spirit being born in the life of a follower of Christ as we are abiding in Him, as we talked about last time, as we're staying connected to Jesus relationally, one of the clearest marks of the fruit of the Spirit produced in a follower of Jesus is the expression of love toward fellow Christians. Not, oh, well, they you know, can do this or they're charismatic or they're talented. Or, listen, none of those things in of themselves are wrong. There are a lot of wonderful things. But the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Not a spiritual superstar that treats people very rude and selfishly. Not someone that can jump up and down and get very excited, but yet treats everybody like a jerk. And listen, I, let me say this. I, I have been in, I, I toned myself down because God's called me to be a part of Calvary Chapel. I've been in, in charismatic Pentecostal worship services. In fact, that before I got saved, my, that was the first church experience I ever had. I didn't grow up going to church. But, but I have been with people who get very excited, very charged up, spiritual pep rally, and then they don't make it as far as the parking lot and they're rude and mean and nasty. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, the Bible teaches us. Love like Christ showed love. And here Jesus keeps emphasizing this evidence of the proper exercise of love. And remember, genuine love is not something that's declared. It's something that's demonstrated. Love is displayed. It's demonstrated. It's not necessarily declared. And honestly, when love is displayed and demonstrated, you don't even have to declare it. Have we not before looked at someone and said, wow, you can tell he really loves her. You can tell they really love their kids. You can tell that mom really loves her children. Is it because she's always... No, no you, you're watching. And as you see it, the display, the demonstration, you can tell that that's the manifestation of love. Love's displayed by caring for and helping and sacrificing yourself to make the lives of other people around you better. Again... Our world, I'm sure I wouldn't have to convince you, has created, has it not, a very confused perspective of what love is. I mean, we live in a culture that is so confused what love truly is and what it's not. In fact, we use the word so trivially, it's almost ridiculous how easy we use the word love. And understand, when we're talking about here this morning, as Jesus speaks from a spiritual perspective about what it means to be loving one another, again, this is talking about Christians now, not loving the world here, but this is talking about Christians, the family of God, loving one another in how we relate to each other. Please understand, it's not describing, let's say, just coming to church and being really social, and the happiest one in the bunch and really outgoing and gregarious and friendly and, and maybe even a little sympathetic at times when somebody says they're going through a hard time. Because again, as I said before, truth be told, unsafe people in the world do that. You know, you go to one of these, uh, you know, networking events or something like that uh, and you realize that people do that at networking events, but they're just looking to get something from somebody else. Or sometimes people act in this way just to maintain an image outwardly. And that can all be quite superficial. Many people who are very, very social are at the same time very, very selfish. So just being super social and friendly and happy again, this can be very superficial. Love is not always about sentimental, send me a Hallmark card, say nice thing. I'm not saying that cannot be a part of love, but loving one another biblically is about something much more deep much more devoted. It's about dedication, something meaningful. It's displayed by how we care for one another, how we interact for one another. As we're becoming more Christ-like and sacrificial like Him, it's about being considerate of one another's needs and, and taking into consideration beyond yourself or what may be best for you or you may be, you know, prefer, but instead being considerate of others, wanting what's best for the other person, serving people in a way that's giving and devoted and sacrificial. And Jesus says here, please don't miss, because I think it's imperative in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, as well as verse 17. He says, loving one another, I have it circled, is a command. It's a command. Now, lest we forget, you look up the word command as defined this way, a command, a direct order from one in authority over us whom we should obey. A direct order from one in authority over us whom we should obey. L let me illustrate very briefly. Someone who is in the military and has had any kind of military, they understand what a command is. A command is not, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, then I'll do it then. Or it's not, I feel like 
doing that, so therefore I'll do what you've given me a command to do. Those who are in law enforcement, those who are military, understand a command is, you have authority, you are over me, I submit to it and I obey it, whether I feel like it, whether I agree with it, whether I like it, whether I enjoy it, it's a command, right? You follow a command. Well, Jesus says that loving one another is a command, which indicates this, loving one another really isn't about feelings, it's really not how I feel about someone else. It's not what I think about someone else. It's a continual choice we make, a constant decision to do what's right, to exercise the will despite feelings or despite conditions or the situation. Particularly, it's a choice to directly obey Jesus, who's my commanding officer. It's a willingness to say, I will choose to submit to his authority. I will love another person because I'm instructed to by my Lord to do that. And they may not be very lovable. I'm not always very lovable. I know that shocks you. Somebody doesn't have to be lovable. You don't have to be in the mood to love. It doesn't have to be, well, be, you know, they've been treating me pretty good. I, I just, yeah, I, I'm not, that's reciprocation. The, biblical love is initiation. It's not reciprocation. Jesus loved us not because we were so loving and charming that he went, oh, they're just so cute. Father, how could we not love them? Look at them. Spitting on us and cursing us. and I mean, They're so, oh, I love them. Right? It was a choice. It was willful action to choose to love. And in the same way, Jesus says, this is my command that you love one another. So us loving one another, honestly, we love one another for Jesus. Jesus, you've called me to do this. You've instructed me to do this. And I just want to remind us, it's good to, to keep that in mind as we seek to love one another. Because sometimes loving one another in our relationships, among the church, the family of God, or, you know, our people, a lot of times, listen, it's very much about faith. It's about faith and obedience. Lord, I may not necessarily feel love towards that person right now. Maybe they've done something to me or the condition or this. But Lord, I will be willing to love them if you give me the power to love them. Because Lord, it's a command. You've commanded me to love them. So I will choose to love them and exercise love towards them willingly out of obedience to you. I will do it for your sake, Lord. I'll exercise love as an act of the will. And with the command, Jesus gives us even the standard and the measure there. You see it in verse 12. He says, love one another as, there's the standard, as I have loved you. So the standard that we're to use in loving one another is the same kind of love that Jesus showed for us the same measure of love that Jesus demonstrates for us. Granted, again, that's not natural in human strength. That does not come naturally to me. Praise God if it does for you. It does not come naturally to me. I don't find the ability within myself and in my human nature to love in that way. But let's go back to verse 1 through 11. As we abide in Jesus, as we stay connected to Jesus relationally, and we're connected to him and the sap of the Spirit of God is flowing from Jesus as the vine into us as the branch, his love by the Spirit of God can be poured into us to enable us to become a channel of his love, 
to then extend that fruit of love to other people. So as I stay connected to Jesus, as you stay continually close to Jesus and you are experiencing his love for you, then as you're experiencing his love for you, you are then able, I am then able by the power of the Spirit to then extend that same love to other people. And you simply become a conduit of that love. You're not manufacturing, let me try and be more loving. I'm going to try and be more loving. God help you with that one. (laughs) But it's as you're experiencing his love and experiencing his love, it becomes the natural byproduct of the fruit of the Spirit that that love comes forth from the Lord. So you're not, in a sense, channeling your love and working. You're receiving the love of the Lord and loving people as Jesus loved you and I because you're receiving it directly from him. Now, what was Jesus' love like? We're to love like him. What was his love like towards us? Well, certainly a couple things come to mind. Certainly Jesus' love is unconditional, has no conditions. There's never a time or there never has been a time where Jesus' love for us is conditional or dependent upon what the circumstances are in my life or what condition I'm in or how I've related to him. It's unconditional love. Jesus' love is loyal and committed. It's an enduring love. It's a love that continues on and on. It endures with us. It continues with us. It's dedicated. Jesus' love is faithful and reliable. It's a love that never changes. Jesus doesn't like people. People, right? We see this all the time. We've all perhaps had one, one of those, you know, but they said they loved me. They said they loved me. And then all of a sudden, one day they decide they don't love me no more. Now they love that person. Wait a minute, they said they love me. Listen, when Jesus says he loves you, he loves you and it ain't ever changing. And you don't have to worry about that. And if you're still struggling and hurting over that yourself, listen, I'm telling you, there is only one antidote for that. You need to receive the love of Jesus and let that fill your heart and let that fill the void and the pain and the cracks and the hurts and all the fractured experiences because that enduring love, and I'll tell you this, when you're receiving that constant, enduring, continuous love of Jesus, it helps you be a little more secure to relax in regards to, well, what if, they don't, what if they stop loving me? One person will keep loving me. One person will keep loving me. And, and there's something about that. It is so wonderful. Jesus' love is limitless in its resources. It has no boundaries or end. And Jesus' love, though it is very compassionate, by the same time, let's not overlook, sometimes Jesus' love is a little correctional too. Because when you love someone, you want what's best for them. And Jesus always spoke the truth. So as we love other people around us, sometimes like Jesus loved us, these are things we should be manifesting to them. But just because we love someone doesn't mean we don't speak the truth into their life. Jesus spoke the truth in their life. Now, one thing that I think is the foremost mark would quickly come to our minds about Jesus' love for us is that it was sacrificial. It was servant-hearted. So as Jesus says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, certainly the first thing, the predominant thing that comes to our mind, even before, okay, I should love people with an enduring love, I should love people unconditionally, I should love people honestly, and and in all the ways that Jesus did. But the one thing that's clearly marked out that we know for certain that it means when we're to love other people in the way that Jesus loved us is that it should be a sacrificial love. A servant hard love. You might say to love as Jesus loved us is to love till it hurts. Or to keep loving even if it kills you. Because that's how Jesus loved us. 
that we would love one another by at times denying what we feel, what may be justified to show love for the other person's benefit alone, to choose repeatedly to sacrifice yourself to do what is in the best welfare of the other person. And all of Jesus' early disciples and followers understood, it seems, the importance of this Christian practice. For example, in their writings, 1 John 4, 7, John says this, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Peter, who heard these same things, said in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things... Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Paul the Apostle, Romans 12 said, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Now, Jesus in verse 13 gives a little expansion now by saying, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friend. So Jesus indicates the greatest measure of love, the greatest form of love is seen when a person sacrifices, as we just talked about, when a person sacrifices their own life for those they care about. Again, teaching us here, this is not something that's done from emotion alone. A person laying down their life for the life of another person is not something because of strong emotion. That's something to spare the life of others by giving your life. That is done from a decision of the will where you make a conscious choice to willingly sacrifice yourself to save the rest of the troops or to sacrifice yourself to spare someone else. That's not of emotion. That is something much deeper. It's a heroic act to give your life, to grant life for what's best for another. And Jesus uses this as an illustration to say here, there is no greater love than sacrificing oneself for the welfare of another person. That's why Jesus says this here in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And is it not true? That's exactly what Jesus, right, is about to do in a matter of a few hours. He's about to do that very thing, to give up his life for them as he would die for them on the cross. He would lay down his life in death so that they may be benefited with all that would come from his sacrifice, doing this through a willing decision. John 10, Jesus said a few chapters back, no one takes my life from me. That is, I'm not forced to do this. I lay it down of myself. And here now he's saying, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. To the greatest degree in human history, Jesus fulfilled his very words there. No one fulfilled that to a greater degree than Jesus did. He would sacrificially suffer and die in our stead, in our place. He laid aside his life. He suffered on our behalf and not just for the disciples, but for all of humanity. First John 2 says he died for the sins of the world, taking the punishment of sin for us. And again, that is the greatest display of love. Many people know John 3.16, of course, but a lot of times people don't take into consideration 1 John 3.16. And listen to what 1 John 3.16 says. It says, by this we know love because he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. By this we know love 
because Jesus laid down his life for us. What the Bible teaches us both there and in other passages is this, is that through what Jesus did in the laying down of his life sacrificially, his suffering and death on the cross, that is the clearest picture. That is the best indication of what love really is. By this we know love. How do we know what love is? What is love? Whenever the Bible wants to indicate what love is, it always points to the cross. Romans 5, God demonstrated his love in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3:16. by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Let me say something this morning. You may be here and maybe you're going through some things in your life right now that are difficult and very hard and challenging and circumstances are not what you want. Life is hard. You're struggling. And in times like that, our minds want to begin to question and the devil wants to fuel that mentality that the Lord must not love me. If he loved me, why would he be letting me go through this? Why would he allow this? Why would he let this happen? Listen, you cannot listen to that. That is a lie. The truth will set you free. And the truth is this. The way you know that Jesus loves you is he hung on a cross and he bled out his life in death for you. He died for you. That is how you always know that Jesus loves you. Not if circumstances are the way you want them to be. Listen, life stinks, man. It's hard. We live in a fallen world. It's difficult. I don't understand why some things happen the way they do other than that we live in a sinful, fallen world. So we cannot measure love off of conditions or circumstances or how we see things or view things. We measure love the accurate way. Seeing Jesus die on that cross for me, that says to me, if he did that for me, I know that he loves me. I may not understand. I may not like things, but that tells me he loves me. That's the way that we must always reassure ourselves of the love of Jesus for us, that we may not get everything else, but we know his love because of that. Now, the rest of that verse says this, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. Listen to the second half of the verse. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what the rest of 1 John 3, 16 says. Jesus laid down his life for us. That's how we know love. And we now ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The idea is we're to replicate that same pattern of Jesus in how we relate to one another. Jesus showed love by laying down his life. How do I show love to my wife? I enter into her world, which is very different from my world. I enter into her world and I die there. You got that, husbands? Now you all don't have to come to the marriage conference. There was, there was. How do I love my children? How do I love fellow Christians? How do we, how do we, sh listen, we lay down our lives. We set aside our pride, our wants, our desires, our selfishness. We seek to serve and represent Jesus and look for ways to do this by laying down our lives. In your family, do you want to love your fellow family members? As kids, brothers, sisters, love your parents? L Lord, how can I lay down my life in this house? 
How can I lay down my life and express your love by being a servant, by being helpful in some way? How can I lay down my life to to serve fellow believers and put them first and find ways to bless them? How can I love my, you know, my peers in school and college and work and in the world by looking for ways to lay down your life sacrificially in servanthood just like Jesus did? Remember as he washed the disciples' feet? That's how we love one another. Well, Jesus, having just referred to them now in verse 13 as friends, wants to reveal more of his love in that context. So he says, verse 14 and 15, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So Jesus' love is so deep and intimate for his followers, he wants to indicate here, I don't want you to think I just look at you as a bunch of spiritual workers, that I'm only looking just for servants to get the kingdom of God's work done, but instead he says, I want you to know I view you in a much higher way. He says, I actually view you as friends, close companions, life partners, and consider what that relationship status really means when you think about the implications of that. Two times here, verse 14 and 15 again, Jesus repeats for emphasis, verse 14, he says, you are my friends. Then he says in verse 15, I have called you friends. I'm calling you friends. I'm telling you that this is what I want. And what does a friendship imply? What does being a friend involve? Well, two things particularly, there could be many, but friendship, first of all, is connected to intimacy. That's what friendship is about. Friendship means there's a closeness, there's a connection, you know each other, there's a companionship. And again, that's what Jesus is offering to us. Closeness, intimacy, close partnership and companionship in that relationship, which reminds us the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, doesn't want just this slave master kind of thing where we do works for him and yet he's aloof and disconnected from our lives but instead he wants a friendship relationship something that's deep and intimate and daily where there's communication and closeness in the way that we relate to him and think of this if you would this doesn't mean that we don't continue to reverence Jesus as a king because he's still the king of kings think of it this way it means that imagine if someone were a king and you were a best friend to the king. That's the best of both worlds. The best of both worlds. He's a king, and so I, re- I reverence and I respect his authority still. Yes, I still submit to him. He's still the king. He calls the shots. But he's also my best friend. And so I have connection. My, my king is my best friend. What a marvelous thing. That's the, the best of both worlds, to have intimacy with someone so powerful, so incredible, and yet you get to be the best friend of the king, the king of kings. That's a marvelous reality. So Jesus wants intimacy, but friendship also doesn't just imply intimacy. Friendship also, secondly, clearly is connected to loyalty. Loyalty, right? That we, that's how we define a lot of times what a genuine or true friend is. It's someone who we say is always there for me. They're a true friend. They're reliable. They're dependable. They're, they're somebody who stands by me. We would say a true friend is someone who's committed to us. I can always count on them. They're there for me. They're dependable. They're the opposite of, in contrast, what we'd say, a fair weather friend. We all know what that means. 
somebody's a fair way. Yeah, they're a friend when everything is going great or it's convenient for them. But somebody who's a true friend, they're devoted, right? They're committed to you. They stand by you. They're with you. They're always there and available for you. No matter what day or hour of the night or what the situation, you can always count on them. And think of this. Jesus is saying here, you're my friend. I look at you as my friend. I don't just look at you as one, you know, one of many servants out there who I'll get to you, get in line, leave a voicemail. Jesus says, you're my friend. I'll drop anything and be right there for you. You're my friend. I'm devoted to you. The Bible says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This speaks of how committed Jesus is to us, that he's dependable, he's reliable. He's the one friend that can always be there for you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he wants to be intimate, and yet he is going to be so committed to you, so loyal to you. Now, Jesus expects, as friends, that we reciprocate the same in friendship. That friendship works both ways, that we would reciprocate friendship to him. I think that's why he's saying, verse 14, what he is, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The idea here is it's a reciprocation of friendship. He says, you're demonstrating friendship towards me when you respect my role as the king still. And you still honor my position. Again, the issue isn't heartless obedience. It's loyalty to Jesus as my friend. That because he has been there in so many ways for me and because all he's done for me so many times over, I want to be a faithful friend to Jesus now. And the way I do that is obeying his lordship and honoring his role as the king. I want to be a reliable friend of the Lord in return, that we would be there for him, to help him in his endeavors. Lord, you're doing something? Lord, I want to be a friend. If you're doing something, I'm there. I'm there, right? Hey, you're, you're, I, I'm moving. Hey, you're moving, bud. We're friends. I'm there. I'm helping you move the couch. Wait, Jesus is moving. He's going to do some ministry. We're all friends. Do you see? Jesus, I want to be a friend to you. How can, I, how can I be dependable, reliable, faithful to you, to honor you? Friends do things for one another, right? They make sacrifices for one another. And sometimes I think I have to step back and say, have I been a, a really good friend to Jesus recently? H have I been a good friend to the Lord? To think of the privilege that he calls me a friend, it challenges me to say, Lord, Help me to be a good friend in response to you and particularly to do that by obeying you, to be loyal to what you want and what you desire. Notice that Jesus wants more than just a work relationship. He says there in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, that is just servants alone, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. Again, I want to say this, be careful that you don't just begin to ever relate to Jesus like just a boss. Be careful of that. I think we all have to guard our hearts to think our Christian life is just about work and service, where we can sometimes wrongly begin to measure our spiritual experience by the ministry and the works that we do for the Lord. And we think, well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm committed. I mean, do you know how many things I do in the church? Do you know how many outreaches I go to? How many things? I mean, I, yeah, I am on fire spiritually. And, and sometimes we measure our spirituality by all that we do. Let me say this as someone who does ministry, vocationally, ministry and service is good. Wonderful. It's a part of our Christian life. But it is no substitute for intimacy with Jesus. It is no substitute for worship of Jesus. 
It is a major, major trap to work for the Lord and neglect to worship the Lord. Be careful of that. I, I caution you. I become very apprehensive when I see people who they, they like to work for the Lord, they like to do things for the Lord, but they have very little interest in worshiping the Lord. And I would caution you, be careful. The worship is what's primary, what's first. Jesus saved you to be his, his friend. He didn't save you just to get some work out of you. Quite frankly, if God wants to be efficient in work, I don't know why he'd use me anyway. I'd use some angels or something. You know, it's a privilege that I get to touch something of the kingdom. I'm first and foremost to be a worshiper. Jesus said in John 4, remember it back then? He said, the Father is seeking worshipers. He didn't say workers or witnessers. He said, the Father seeking worshipers. This is what we are called to first. And I think as Jesus says here, look, I don't want you just to be servants. I want you to be friends. And he even mentions in verse 15 at the end, one of the privileges of having a friendship with him. He says, for all things now that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. So again, a servant doesn't get all the information from a master. Jesus says, this is the distinction here of friendship. Because a servant doesn't always need to know what his master is doing. All a servant needs to know is what his master once done. So he says, you know, a lot of times a servant just gets an order, but he doesn't know what's on the master's heart or what's on the master's mind. He's not included in those things because he's just a servant. But Jesus says, I no longer just call you a servant who doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things I've heard from my father. I've made known or revealed to you. See, the contrast is, Friends share things with one another. And Jesus is saying one of the benefits and rewards of spiritual friendship with him is spiritual revelation. Is Jesus wants to reveal things to you. He wants to treat you like a friend in the sense that what do friends do? Friends tell each other things. They include each other in what's going on in their lives. Hey, this is what's, this is what's my ideas or, my, or this is my heart or here's what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. And, and friends share these things and Jesus is saying, listen, I want to share things with you. I want to reveal things to you. I don't want to have you just go do duty for me. I want you also to understand what's on my heart. I want you to know my desires. I want you to sense what's on my heart and what's on my mind and have that deeper sense of awareness of what the Lord's doing even as we step in to those things we may be involved in. Well, Jesus then says, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he says, or in my name from the Father, that he may give it to you. You. So he wants his followers to know as well, another thing I think of the depths of his love, is that the relationship that they were having with him, Jesus and the disciples, and you and I as his followers now, that the initiator was Jesus. That he was the one that initiated it, and this is a demonstration of his love to remind us of the value he puts upon our lives. Think about it. Jesus says here, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. They at one point heard Jesus say, follow me. So in their minds, they always reflect upon, they can think of that day, okay, I remember the day that I chose to follow Jesus. And we might say, yeah, I remember that hour when I decided to start following the Lord. And Jesus is saying here, look, far before that time, little did you know, 
Far before that time when you chose to follow me, I had already chosen you one day to be in a relationship with me and I had set you apart and I had selected you to become my follower. And I began working in your life. He wants them to understand he chose to be our friend. We think we chose to be his friend. I chose you as my friend. I, I determined and wanted to have a close relationship with you. He's saying to his disciples, I'm glad you're on my team, but I wanted you to be on my team. I'm not letting you be on my team, right? There's a difference there. We see that we, you know, we we pick teams, you know, for soccer with the kids on Friday nights, and it's you know it's always a bummer. You feel so bad when the last one gets picked, you know, it's like we're gonna, oh, we're gonna let you be on our team because we have to because you gotta take a last pick. And you know, they let me be on the team. No, Jesus, said, I ain't, I'm not letting you be on the team. I want you on my team. I handpicked you to be on my team. I chose you to be my follower, knowing what I could do in and through your life. Jesus wants you to represent him. He wants you to be someone who experiences what you do in a relationship with him. And Jesus engineers all the events of our lives so that one day we can be brought under the sphere of his influence and yield to his lordship. Do you realize that? Everything that was happening in your life, even the dumb things that I was doing before I was saved, Jesus was engineering all those things orchestrating everything so that one day we'd be brought into the sphere of his influence and we would choose to yield to his lordship and we choose to follow him. And what a marvelous thing. That should make you as a Christian feel very loved. It should make you feel very valued and special that Jesus doesn't just accept you as his follower, he wanted you as his follower. He chose you as his follower. That has tremendous meaning and purpose. You were handpicked by the Lord, just like a powerful ruler or leader, our, our president, right? They, and when a new president comes to office, they appoint people to certain positions and, and offices. Well, think of what this is saying. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to be a servant of mine to be someone who is my representative. And notice why we were chosen, appointed by Jesus. Two things, verse 16 tells us. The first reason you were chosen by Jesus and appointed by him, he says, is to bear fruit for his kingdom. He says, I chose and appointed you, look at it, that you should go and bear fruit. His disciples were selected that they might go out and fulfill the purposes of the Lord. That by going forth into the world, they would be fruitful in their labors for the kingdom. Here, when Jesus talks about bearing fruit, it seems in this context, he's speaking about particularly being productive and fruitful in service to the Lord. In the harvest fields of ministry, in the kingdom of God, Jesus wants his followers to spend time alone with him, connected, that's John 15, 1 to 11, and then out of that, having received his love and power, to then go out into the world and begin to be fruitful for him. Philippians 1 speaks of fruit from my labor. Colossians 1.10 speaks of being fruitful in every good work. So, of course, sowing seeds of the gospel. Sowing seeds of the word of God, laboring in the harvest fields, doing works of ministry for the Lord, serving people with the intention that we want to see a harvest for the Lord. We want to see good fruit come forth. We want to see people get saved and lives helped and transformed or a community impacted or changed for the good. And Jesus says not just fruit, but verse 16, he says that your fruit should remain, which shows us something. Jesus wants lasting fruit. 
He wants fruit that continues beyond just a, a present moment. Jesus desires, listen, permanent, continuous, ongoing fruit. Not just temporary fruit that just disappears a day or two or a few later. Jesus wants fruit that remains lasting, continuous fruit. He wants ongoing transformation and change in our lives. And he wants to see lasting fruit through our lives when we work and serve the Lord. And again, I think this is a good reminder when we do function in Christian service that our approach to ministry and our evaluation of how ministry is going should be, is it fruit that remains? Remaining fruit, lasting fruit, continuous fruit that has within it the ability to reproduce that there's continuous fruit in the next season. Not just a momentary, there you go, we did something and then there's no fruit afterwards. But remaining, lasting fruit, this is what matters to the Lord. It's one of the reasons we were chosen and appointed by him. And the second thing he mentions in verse 16 of why we were chosen and appointed is that so that we might experience answers to prayer. You were chosen by Jesus and appointed by Jesus to experience answers to prayer. He says that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Notice Jesus connects here fruit bearing to answered prayer. What he's doing here is coupling something together. He's coupling together that asking prayer is necessary for bearing fruit. Oh, I want to be fruitful for the Lord. How do I do that? Well, Jesus here, I think, gives an indication. He's already talked about what it means to pray in his name. Here he brings it up again. He says, if you ask in my name in accordance with my will, my desires, my heart, he says the Father wants to honor those kind of prayers. And he says this is how you're actually going to be fruitful. This is how you are going to become fruitful. These two are linked together. Asking things in prayer is necessary for fruit bearing to happen spiritually. This is an important reminder for us to always keep close to our hearts. Prayer plays an essential role in a believer's fruitfulness. Because it is as we enter into the fields to serve the Lord, as we take time to pray, that's what spiritually waters things. That's what waters the soil of the field we work in to soften and prepare it to be fertile and receptive. That's how we water the seed that we sow of the gospel or the word of God. And apart, listen, apart from seeking the Lord's divine intervention, whether it's sharing the gospel with a friend, doing ministry in whatever form, apart from seeking God's divine intervention through prayer, we are relying strictly on our human effort alone. That's pretty sad. That's pretty vain. Yet, when we ask for God's involvement, we ask for God's power by praying together with serving, a supernatural dynamic then begins to happen. Listen to Acts 4. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness and with great power. The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Listen, let me say one last thing. And if you've dozed off, give me your attention for a moment. I want you to consider this. We have been appointed to pray. We've been appointed to chosen and given an appointment 
to pray. I would ask all of us this. How you doing with keeping the appointment? And I would say this in closing. The most loving thing I can do as a human being and as a Christian is to pray for someone. Because I can't fix people. And trust me, I tell you, after a lot of years, I can't fix people. I can't fix their problems. I can't fix when they're in pain. I can't fix the complicated dynamics of what they get themselves into their webs. But God can do the impossible. And when you pray, it's loving because the power and the involvement of God comes in and does something that we can't do in our humanity. The most loving thing you can do is keep your appointment and pray. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together as we close.